Hello everybody and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, volume 10, issue 491. And today, because it is 25 years old, we're going to be talking about the original Tomb Raider. Joining me, Leon Cox, in this issue are John Salmon. Hi. And Carl Moon. Hey everyone. Redundant, possibly, but what is Tomb Raider 1996? I've described it as a globe-trotting, polygon-rendered, third-person 3D action puzzle platform adventure starring a female English protagonist. (laughs) For those who uh, haven't heard us before, we sometimes do series shows, we sometimes do individual games, and this is just in in honour of 25 years of the original, we're just talking about Tomb Raider the first, the 1996 original today, so we can go into some depth with it. We start off, as usual, to give context and uh, a sense of our own experience, our histories with the game, memories of your and whatever else is relevant to this. Let's start with Carl. So this is one of the rare times on this game that I didn't get a game a game at launch. Uh, mm-hmm. I was very much aware of the game. I may have rented it when it first came out, um, but I, I got this for Christmas 1996 along with... Okay. You know, broken you were hardly sword. a late adopter then. Well, not yeah, really, was... but I mean, two you were, months is you were a long a kid, time. <laughs> so you were waiting. Well, it would have been, but you you were waiting for presents, and that's fair enough. And well, presumably waiting exactly. for the PlayStation version as well. Well, yes, I didn't have a Saturn at the time, so mm-hmm. um, it had to be the PlayStation version, and it was going to be a bumper Chris, uh, Christmas in the Moon household. With you know, I think Broken Sword came out that Christmas, and I got that. Oh yeah, and a bunch of other games. Obviously, the hype had been building for Tomb Raider for a long time. I think we'd we'd seen a lot of advertising. I, I know, like myself, Leon, you bought a load of games magazines around that time yes. and, and read them mm-hmm. religiously. And you know, it was Resident Evil ev- over everything right yeah, up until Lara Croft. Summer, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. right. And yeah. I can't remember what what magazine it was, um, and it, it very. Clearly had the headline, move over Resident Evil, Tomb Raiders here, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, like they're in the same genre. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's how it was back then. It was yeah. just, probably to this day, I've probably never seen a game advertised across magazine covers quite like the original Tomb Raider. Um, I think probably every magazine that wasn't a Nintendo-based magazine seemed to have Lara Croft on it at some point. Mm. And it was just absolutely dominant. Um, and you you couldn't ignore... You know, this uh, Sega Saturn standout game um, that turned out to be one of Sony's biggest hits. And just the whole running towards Christmas that year, walking down the high street, um, collecting my annual big, big full wall-sized posters from Chips um, before Christmas as as they take them all down, walking past Comet where they had Tomb Raider on the... the sort of attract screen, I guess, in the window, which seems a bit iffy now, I guess. Um, that that a game that adult would be would be openly on the high street and just taking it all in and being so excited and I remember actively counting down the days till Christmas so that I could finally get my hands on and play Tomb Raider so it was uh, a huge build up um, and then to actually have to wait beyond launch for for Christmas morning was 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 pretty mighty for. 12-year-old Carl, uh, you know, right at that, I suppose, perfect age group for um, not just Tomb Raider, but the PlayStation um, and the advertising yeah. in general. So, yeah, it was a, it was a, a pretty big moment to, to rip the wrapping paper off it on Christmas morning. John, what are your memories of the time? Uh, I am 
remarkably different from what Carl's just described. Like, I don't think in 96 I was at all switched on to any sort of gaming media or hype or anything like that. And I didn't come from a, a family that had any interest in games at all. Um, mm. We would have, at this point, we wouldn't have had a computer at home. Neither of my parents had ever expressed anything but contempt for the idea of playing video mm. games. We'd had a Mega Drive. We might have had Game Boys. Um, we didn't get either a PlayStation or an N64 until probably like two years beyond this point and never had anything else after that uh, After that initial Mega Drive. Um, so all of my experience from knowing about Tomb Raider was just from people talking about it at school, basically. Um, and I... I, I what age got, were you, sorry? Uh, yeah. I would have 19, turned 11 96. almost exactly okay. the time this came out. Um, Similar age to Carl, but younger. Yeah, a little bit younger, but I think Carl obviously has a benefit of having a family who is yeah. a, bit more, a bit more switched on. A little um, bit. Uh, whereas my parents would have been like, what do you want video game magazines for? Why would you need this? So everything just came from word of mouth. And I do distinctly remember a friend at school. It, I, I don't know whether they would have been talking about either the Saturn version or the PlayStation version of this. But talking about getting this game Tomb Raider, so it was it was all all just hearing about it, and I don't think don't think there was a lot. Um, my main memory of actually playing the game would have come from probably at that point. Uh, I had numerous friends who had PlayStations, and I remember going to friends' houses and playing the at least Tomb Raiders one, two, and three on the PlayStation, and borrowing their copies and attempting to play them, but being young and not particularly well versed in video games at that point i was just always absolutely rubbish at them i can't remember if i ever actually owned a playstation copy of it or if we just borrowed it from friends or played it at their houses but my my kind of main experience was a few years even beyond that probably in about 2001 um when we had a pc and i was playing a lot of pc games um i played through all of the early Tomb Raider games. And it, I, I've always mm. considered it to, it to be one of my fairly formative gaming experiences, even though I was mm. 15, maybe 16 by that point. But this PC that we had, I played so many games on it and really, you know, f properly fell in love with something that I already knew I was there on. So I played through all of the Tomb Raider games that had been released at that point. It was definitely at least up to four, possibly Chronicles. Right. And again, it was like... I was pretty young. I wasn't that well versed, so I could beat the first couple of levels and then ended up resorting to using walkthroughs and things. Um yeah. but doing that I ended up playing through and just I I don't think even even though there were lots and lots of games at that point in 2000 and I had played a lot of games, there weren't very many things that stuck out to me in the same way that definitely the first couple of Tomb Raider games did with the um just the the sort of intensity and the atmosphere that comes through them. And also, even though kind of mostly following a walkthrough to find secrets and things, a real sense of accomplishment that actually felt like you were being smart rather than just in something mm -hmm. like Doom rather than being tactical. Um, so it really stuck with me for that reason. And I'm very, very pleased that we've ended up doing this. It's something I've wanted to talk about for a long time. So Excellent. Well, for myself... I was in my mid-twenties, also a good age for a, a young-ish PlayStation owner. Uh, I'd obviously come off the back of being around through the 8 and 16-bit eras as well, and I'd seen kind of formative 
attempts at uh, polygon-driven games, third and first person, sometimes vector graphics, sometimes solid, often tended to run quite slowly, very well, quite slowly, incredibly slowly, like unplayably slowly by modern standards of literal single-digit frame rates and stuff like that. So this was an exciting time where it seemed possible to start to build textured games in 3D polygons that actually ran at an acceptable frame rate of upwards of, you know, (laughs) upwards of 15 to 25 frames a second on PAL systems. Uh, And yeah, like Carl, um, I was very aware of the hype building up to the release of Tomb Raider. And for me, I I bought a, I had a PlayStation from the previous Christmas and I loved it and I played loads of cool stuff, Ridge Racer and Tekken and Wipeout and all that stuff on it. But I also, in the summer of 96, had uh, bought my Saturn so I could play Virtua Fighter 2 and Sega Rally and Virtua Cop and all that great stuff. Knights had come out that autumn as well. And, uh, or late summer. And... This was another game that I knew was leading on the Saturn. And as such, why not? I was going to buy it there. It was going to come out first. It was getting, when the reviews started to hit, they were broadly very positive. So I bought the Saturn version and uh, and I, I got a little way into that. And then after that exclusivity window ended, the PS1 version came out. And uh, because the PlayStation was already such a, smash hit compared to the Saturn the the hype kind of took on a new level and uh, and there was a comparison in a magazine I think when the PS1 version came out people were sort of uh, saying yeah actually it runs a little better it looks a little better it sounds a little better and so I I did the thing I traded versions this was like a formative digital foundry kind of experience where it was just those few little extra bells and whistles the water looked nicer that kind of stuff uh, even though there was yeah nothing wrong with the Saturn version as such, it was just uh, it was just a slight upgrade that was worth the the, the trade in price uh, difference for from for me. Then I uh, I I can't remember exactly when it would have been, but I guess not that long after it came out, uh, I did manage to complete the game, but with the help of my Sherpa, uh, the the woman who I lived with at the time had. Um, was for whatever reason happy to be my guide uh, in the sense that she used one of those um, pulpy books that they used to stick on the front of magazines. Yeah. Uh, Play, I think it was Play Magazine, this one, or PlayStation Power maybe or something like that. I can't remember. Anyway, it, uh, it guided us uh, through the, the, the caverns where where there's no, there was absolutely no signposting or handholding whatsoever. And uh, even even in my mid twenties, I needed a little steering to uh, to make my way through the levels. But I got there in the end, uh, and I've never completed it since. I bounced off the second game. I barely touched the third game. Didn't touch the next ones. Don't have much history with the first reboot series. Have played the first and second of the most recent reboot series. So um yeah, my my whole history with the character and the, and the game series is actually quite yeah patchy. One of the other things that I was also excited about the game was that it was made by Core Design. As a, an Amiga fan, I'd already played a whole bunch of their games. They were it was generally a seal of quality. Core Design they were a good studio with a with a solid output. I think you know you could look back at it now and say, well, that wasn't as good as that one or whatever. But I'd played and enjoyed the likes of Rick Dangerous and Corporation and Carve Up and Chuck Rock and uh, Thunderhawk, of course. 
and Jaguar XJ220 and all these games, they were they were a, an absolute stalwart of the Amiga uh, platform. And so I had a certain amount of faith that their output on the on the PlayStation might be might be worth investigation. And of course, it was released on the IDOS label. Well, I hadn't bought an IDOS game up to this point, I don't think. But I'd looked at them with envy because if you go back and listen to our championship manager show, it was IDOS, of course, uh, that had absorbed Domark and then released Championship Manager 2 and Championship Manager 96, 97. IDOS now, of course, part of Square Enix. But back then they were uh, uh, a relatively new kid on the block, but quite a big label. Preliminary work on the game commenced in or around 1993. The concept of the game coming to the creator of it, Toby Gard, during development of BC Racers, which was a Mega Drive kart game starring his Chuck Rock or the Chuck Rock, cause Chuck Rock characters, a uh, very different kind of proposition. The lead programmer was Paul Douglas, who just worked on this one before leaving with Toby Gard to work on Galleon, which maybe we'll cover someday. And that's an interesting story in itself. They were joined in the coding with Jason Gosling and Gavin Rummery. I also wanted to note that the the actual story writer of the first three games in the trilogy, the original PS1 trilogy, if you will, uh, was Vicky Arnold. Uh, but I don't I'm not sure that she has more credits beyond those games. The game came out then. Yes. In the EU first in October 96 on the Saturn exclusively and didn't arrive until the 14th of November in North America, which was also uh, it arrived on both formats or th all three formats simultaneously, MS-DOS, Saturn and PS1 on 14th of November in North America. Let's hear from our first forum contributor. This is Ashman86, who says I was 11, maybe 12 when I first played Tomb Raider on my Sega Saturn. Games in 3D were still positively mind blowing to me and Tomb Raider felt like a window into the future of the medium. Also, to this day, I still like to tell people, half joking, that it's the scariest game I've ever played. I was aware of the game after all the press it had started to get in the magazines I was reading, and I couldn't believe my luck when I found it in a rental shop one afternoon. After booting it up and getting through the game's introduction, I was struck by how lonely the game felt. In the, cave, in the caves of the first level, I was surrounded almost entirely by darkness, and it was very quiet, much quieter than I was used to games being. I took some time getting used to shooting my dual pistols while jumping around. Then I set off exploring, killing a few wolves and bats as I went. And then I dropped into the area where the first bear appeared. I was examining the ruins there, just kind of taking everything in, completely clueless that I was being stalked. I swiveled the camera around and there was the bear practically on top of me. It let out a roar and swung a paw at me and I screamed aloud. I turned the game off and was too scared to play it again for at least a day. I did manage to make it to the T-Rex later, before I had to return the copy to the rental shop, but it's that encounter with the bear that stands out to me as one of my most vivid gaming memories. It yeah. reminds me that story of my uh, Rescue on Fractalus experience that I may have related on a, on a podcast or two before, which was the first time I was ever scared by a game that I literally kind of leapt backwards out of my seat, knocking my chair over and things like that. It is something you will never forget. <laughs> yeah, what is it about these um, games that aren't explicitly supposed to be horror games that somehow right. manage to do such a great job of it? Yeah, because you're not prepared. Absolutely. Yeah. Tomb Raider has very similar things where everything's kind of quiet, everything's calm, 
and then just out of nowhere, particularly in some of the later levels, like you'll hear this scream and something will come flying out, a panther will come flying out of a dark corridor somewhere and it catches you off guard so badly. The PC and PS1 versions arrived then North America, as I say, 14th November 96 in Europe on the 22nd, just a week or so later. Pixel Hunted from our forum says, I played this quite a bit on the PC around launch as a kid, but never got very far, ending up using the cheat codes to skip around the game and see the shiny FMVs. But I went back to it in the mid-2010s, as it felt like unfinished business, and surprised myself by really getting into it. I was particularly shocked at how quickly I appreciated the controls. Sure, they're archaic, but the grid-based system means it's easy to navigate once you know the rules and all the levels are carefully designed around Lara's capabilities. I also loved the quiet, isolated atmosphere and the lack of intrusive HUD. It felt like the game was simply letting me exist in its world without leading me by the neck through it. I was so impressed that I played all the original Tomb Raiders and the various expansion packs and found something to enjoy in them all. The interesting point about the HUD, I remember there being a lot of talk about games kind of dropping HUDs probably in the early next gen era, PS2 games, thinking like Eco and stuff like that. But actually, yeah, Lara and Tomb Raider, this game, there are long periods where you've got no yeah. HUD on the screen. Uh, only the, the health bar shows when you take some damage. That's about it, right? I think it's when you pull your guns, you see your health bar, and then okay. if you right. pick up a key, it'll hold the key in the bottom corner of the screen for an extended period of time. But other okay. than that, absolutely nothing. Yeah. Do you not get a, a, an ammo counter for this one, or is that probably yeah, once, you on do, if once you, you got use a shotgun? The shotgun, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The reviews at the time, as I said, were very kind. PC version averaging 92%, according to Game Rankings, PS1 90%, and the Saturn version just lower at 87%. The iOS version has a Metacritic of 55. The game won a multitude of Game of the Year awards from leading industry publications, according to Wikipedia, and sold around the world something like 7.5 million copies, topping the British game charts a record three times. In the previous year, Eidos Interactive had actually recorded a nearly $2.6 million pre-tax loss but the success of Tomb Raider turned this loss into a $14.5 million profit in a year. As one of the top-selling games of the PS1, Tomb Raider was one of the first games to be released on the PlayStation Platinum series. Often, if, you're, if you see a box copy of Tomb Raider these days in a second-hand shop or in a, at a market or whatever, it'll often be with the, the, the shiny platinum silvery-coloured flashes and whatever else. Looking at user reviews today of the game, for what it's worth, on the IMDb, 2,800-odd people have it as an 8 out of 10. And on Steam, it has a very positive from 2,900-odd people. So, adventurer Lara Croft has been hired to recover the pieces of an ancient artefact known as the Scion. With her fearless acrobatic style, she runs, jumps, swims and climbs her way towards the truth of its origin and powers, leaving only a trail of empty tombs and gun cartridges in her wake. On this trail are breathtaking 3D worlds where exploration, puzzle and platform elements blend in a seamless real-time environment. Apart from the seams, um, which are very visible, <laughs> uh, both in terms of the polygons and between the levels, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> um, also, there aren't many tombs, famously. Character, obviously, as we say, inspired by the likes of Indiana Jones, who itself 
himself was inspired by any number of other earlier characters in I go uh, Jones and whatever else um Tank Girl as well of course an influence the the comic and and sort of cult movie uh, Ellie Sattler from Jurassic Park often cited as an influence uh, Eon Flux Aeon Flux I think it's a is it a manga yeah. or an anime uh with a a kind of uh you know ass kicking heroine Sarah Connor from uh, Terminator and John Woo movies with the kind of air ballet and the the shooting games wise obvious uh, inspirations were Prince of Persia I think that was the that and uh, flashback were the ones that sp sprang to mind at the time but there's also certain gameplay similarities with another world which we're covering later this year which Carl's very happy about <laughs> uh, flashback as well yes obviously um, which is kind of a spiritual successor to Prince of Persia anyway uh, and before Tomb Raider, but after Flashback, was, of course, Fade to Black, which I think, again, probably way more so even than Tomb Raider, would look and feel quite spectacularly mm. clunky now. But at the time, I went out and bought Fade to Black on the PS1, and I was aware it had it had some shortcomings and some issues, but actually it was, again, it was one of those games that, even before Tomb Raider, kind of started to convince us that action third person character action games could work in a polygon space the other influence that we have to mention is of course from the same stable the same studio one of their earliest games core designs rick dangerous in which what uh, <laughs> uh, i mean it's very much like uh, one of the it wasn't the first but it was uh, in some ways it's it's uh, it's got it's an influence on some of these modern games that are very um, there was that sort of viral video going around of that mobile game from a couple of years ago that just kills you all the time in the most cruel ways possible. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like it's the father of the grandfather, father of those kind of experiences. But of course, it also had a massive Indiana Jones influence in it. A spelunker with a hat dodging blowpipe darts and boulders and all that kind of thing. So uh, I suspect maybe without Rick Dangerous, you know, maybe there wouldn't have been a tomb raider i don't know let's talk about the graphics in the game john cheatham from our forum says these were the original globe trotting 3d adventures to us when we were young seeming to contain entire worlds of thrills and mystery in which to leap and spelunk have to give credit to the visual design where it's due the use of color and scale to make those low poly tombs and caves memorable was striking then and it's something that still stands up today happy gray box five says graphically amazing for the time containing many memorable and impressive levels i think the solitary atmosphere still works today looking back at it i'm still really impressed and I, i'm you know I, I do remember quite vividly large chunks of the first half of the game which is the better looking half of the game it, it's probably it, the better it half does of the game get rather bland with egypt and then Atlantis. Yeah. the the levels are and there's set pieces in them but they're kind of a little bit less memorable they are. It's it's the color palette. The the creativity de definitely dips in the, probably the last third of the game. Uh, certainly in Atlantis, and I find that really off putting as an area. The stark blacks to reds and stuff. But actually, if you look through the cave system and the, and the construction of the world is very unorthodox. Yes, there's corridors that are absolutely very much just blocks. You know, you're running through a, the the squarest kind of corridor you could imagine. But there are actual areas where you get really um, 
abstract formations of, of poly, uh, polygonal structure that was very different to anything else for a very long period of time in creating a organic looking but actual 3d world not something that used a lot of sprites to generate that stuff and obviously it did finish it off with sprite things for for like plants and and, and foliage and fauna and, and so forth but actually if you actually look at the construction of the the cave systems um in the first of i think it's probably fair to say there's four worlds um in 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 the game the very first one is actually tremendously crafted from the the 3d itself to the murals around uh, the pools and the and the water areas to the the detailing on the pillars and the structures of the buildings that are hidden within these caves um it it's to think that that's quarter of a century old mm. it puts quite a lot of other games to shame that that came after this in terms of its structure and it sounds weird to say something that holds up today because you couldn't put a game out that looked and controlled quite like Tomb Raider. Only right? if it, it was, it wouldn't. Uh, sit. Yeah, if it was like a deliberately because uh, we are seeing a, a lot of these kind of pseudo PS One style yeah, games and whatever hit that else. Point where PS One and polygonal stuff you, seems in to be vogue there. again. Yeah. You couldn't put it out as a, a Demon Souls on the PS Five type tent pole for the new console title. Put it that e- way, exactly. <laughs> but the the artistic intent. I think absolutely does hold strong when you look at the very limited tools tool set that they had with the PlayStation as a console. Um, yet for me, the, the 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 game's first three levels that make up the first area are undoubtedly for me the strongest and most enjoyable area of that game. But all the way through into, I presume the second area is the Middle East. Do you know what I generally uh, don't Greece. know? And the fourth, the third area is Egypt. Second one's Greece. Greece. Okay. So, yeah, that makes far more sense with Damocles. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, the, Damocles being the fastest in there. room, and um, the Thor room, and everything. Wait, no, Thor doesn't. Yeah, make Thor, sense. it must be the Greek version of Thor. Yeah, the um, th- those areas, I adore little touches around them that still make me make me smile. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's an incredibly striking game and definitely different to anything else that I'd experienced in the 3d realm till that point um without without shadow of a doubt and even the leaps that we saw between one and two and two and three uh it's actually that first area in the first game is still the one that i think is the best in terms of its approach and its intention of the of the art style i think it's actually tremendous i think there's something about those first three levels in particular that are very very strong and i'm i'm yeah. fairly convinced that part of it is because once you get past the second level i think the game starts to get more convoluted but those first two levels comparatively are relatively straightforward relatively linear they're almost like a, a sort of an introduction or a training to you know yeah, figure yes. out how the mechanics work figure out how the swimming works you know figure out that keys go into the boxes that look similar to how the keys looked and you tend to move from room to room to room in fashion until you reach the end of the level. Whereas I think by the time you get to the third one, the third one's a little bit like, here's your starting hub area, and there are spokes leading off here that you need to go down and collect things and bring them back. And then the starting area kind of changes and becomes the end of the level at the same time. 
And that level mm. then has its set pieces with the um, the bit where suddenly the dinosaurs appear out of nowhere and you change the uh, the water in the river so that you can go through the, the waterfall at the end of the level. And then you've got, um, is it when you come back out of there later on, you've got what's essentially like a, a very brief boss fight. So that, I, I feel like that third level is the point where it's, this is how this game is now going to work. You've got essentially kind of fetch questy things of you're working towards the switch that opens the next door or the key that gets you through yeah. this area. Um, and it kind of changes up the uh, the feeling of the game to make it much more complicated and much more based on memory, remembering that, you know, two hours ago you were in this area where there was something that you couldn't get to and maybe now you can do it because you've you've changed the geometry or, or found a, a key. Um, and that's well, the point. Geometry is the big part, right? Because it evolves the use of geometry as well. So no longer are you jumping into or pushing a square block or jumping into a square hole or a clearly visible hole. You may be actually looking at a, 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 a strange angle, maybe a 45 degree angle from where you were and looking for a triangle handhold that you'll jump into and then... Um, go horizontally until you can climb up into a gap yeah. and that starts to get introduced and that really ramps up the level of complexity and the ease of getting lost that Leon mentioned earlier on that that you, it starts to bring that exploratory element to it where it's not so predictable uh, and it does introduce those things in the first two levels with you know okay that's what a trap looks like okay we fight bats right this is wolves uh, on thingy okay i can fall through the ground and fight a bear you know so you, you do see that that structure of teaching you things one at a time in a tutorial structure but from that third level it's like right okay you've got all of that but now you've got to explore and by the way the geometry is quite unusual and it's this was very much the era, era where you could get lost for weeks at a time and you might have to wait for a guide to be in a magazine mm. or something like that. Yeah. And mm. yeah, that, a large part of that is due to that world structure. And it, yeah, the third level is definitely the bit where it changes. And it's the third area of the game, Egypt. It's very extreme. <laughs> yeah. As it goes on, you start to get into more kind of jumping puzzles, um, precise yeah. climbing as you, I'm not entirely sure if this is what you're talking about, but you've got like the, the three different types of surface that you can potentially climb on, like the flat one and the one that's maybe like 20 yeah. degrees. And then the one that you're going to slide down. So looking for the spot that you can jump to that you're not going to slide off the back of, or maybe looking yeah. for the spot that when you land on it, you'll start sliding, but then you can also jump backwards to land on the thing that's behind it. And that with the kind of the, awkward camera controls not necessarily being able to see everything leads to a huge amount of um like trial and error and uh abusing save systems and that sort of thing which fortunately you can do on some versions um yeah. so it's it's yeah like i think that these early core design games kind of do a good job of of doing that tutorializing and of course you've got the um the mansion that we haven't really talked about where again yes i struggle to remember because they have a mansion in at least the first three games and i i can't really remember what happens in which one but um you this this is a it's bit quite basic in the first one it's the first one the yeah. one where there's like the gym mats and it does teach you about yes. like doing the flipping round and yeah. climbing up the walls and stuff Pretty much, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, she 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 has a voiceover which tells you 
doesn't it doesn't show you on screen she just actually says press this button to do this and you know run run at the edge of this and press jump at the end and grab on you know it's that kind of it's that straightforward get in the water swim back out again that kind of thing uh, apparently the gradient gradiented slopes were a very late addition to the game uh, the tech didn't have them in until yeah relatively late in the process mm. uh even That's though they, yeah, even though they form quite an important part of uh, some of the action puzzles, don't they? Sound was by Martin Iveson, the audio effects and so on. Again, he was uh, a name that was uh, well known to us uh, Amiga fans in particular, having heard his, uh, I mean, he did the music for some stuff on the Amiga, which he didn't do for this, but he did the sounds for Heimdall, Wonder Dog, Wolfchild yeah. premiere, things like that. Uh, the music by Nathan McCree was composed in a matter of weeks. We covered, well, covered, we interviewed Nathan McCree back in our Sound of Play podcast, 237. You can still get that from the website, canerince.com. And we played some of his uh, music from there. Happy Grey Box 5 says Nathan McCree, Nathan McCree did an excellent job. I wish later games and movies would call back to his work more often. I still listen to the soundtrack today. I think mm -hmm. there normally is a callback, but it's often relatively kind of disguised and and in the yeah. down low. But yeah, uh, I I'm sure I talk on that podcast where I where I finally got to interview Nathan. Just how much I love that original theme. I think honestly, like without that theme, I don't think I'd have liked the overall game as much as I did. It just really Possibly, yeah. captured my heart and dragged me into the atmosphere of the game because it does have that sort of slightly melancholy atmospheric kind of thing if it, if they'd just gone for a generic cinematic bombastic kind of thing uh or a yeah or a john williams raiders of the lost ark type score i don't know if it would have resonated in the same way there was just something about that piece of music the way the the the, the key or whatever that he went for yeah. uh just it's still I find it, yeah, still quite magical, even all this time later. And in particular, like there are loads of lovely versions of it, orchestrated versions and, and whatever else. But there is something about partly nostalgia, no doubt. But there is something about the actual MIDI noises that he uses in the original, those artificial sounding choirs almost yeah. to, make, to me make it more haunting than if it was real voices. Yeah, it's, it's an epic shelf theme, isn't it? Where it... A couple of notes in, you go straight away, that, that's Tomb Raider. And I couldn't tell you if someone played me some music from any other Tomb Raider game, I wouldn't necessarily recognise it. But that bit from the first game, 25 years later, I could not have heard it for a decade and I'm still going to know that that's Tomb Raider. And there's very there's very few games that have that. It's it's like what World 1-2 in, in Mario Brothers kind of um, that, Halo. They're, they're kind of the real big hitters, right, where you immediately think and... Um, it, it's going against the groove, you know, that, that that not being afraid. You mentioned there about not being bombastic, and I think that's exactly the reason that Halo, for the same reason, that theme stands out. Mm. And and the, 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 I was listening to the Tomb Raider soundtrack today whilst I was working, um, getting in my getting in the mood for the podcast. Uh, and yeah, it's it's kind of that the hairs on the on your arms kind of all raise up. It, it is just. There's something about it. You a fan, John, or would you prefer some thrash metal? Oh no, no! I think this is <laughs> this is absolutely perfect for for what it uh, what it's attempting to do here. 
and it's the main theme is obviously the big standout but there's lots of little i don't i feel like it's almost a little bit disrespectful to say sort of incidental music that's in there but some of the little sound cues that pop up the little um enemies are approaching kind of uh stings that play occasionally um there's a, a very playful piece of music i think it comes in when you first meet the bats in the first level or at some point that uh, when the bats show up that then also reappears in various places later on and you know when you hear that 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 something problematic is about to occur you're going to have some sort of combat puzzle but there's there's also um like little cues and things that play like the secret music um or secret sting that plays when you when you discover a hidden item uh is like absolutely embedded yeah. in the back of my head there's um we talk about atmosphere but you look at um the atlantis levels particularly i think it's the last two levels where the the organic fleshy walls and everything all come in and there's just mm. this horrible kind of low heartbeat noise that plays through the entire thing like um so some of some of the incidental does sound bad but some of that background no, noise and i'm sure that's the, the technical term i think that's correct great point spot from sean s thomas from our forum who says the gorgeous choral opening and succinct interludes there you go if you want a different term added tension and pacing to key events in the game such as when animals rare enemies or key landmarks would appear foreshadowing how breath of the wild would use sound 20 years later I like the idea that there's just this 20 year gap where none of that stuff happens. There's no no animal noise in any well, game. Well, no, sure, but no, but I think the actual the the use of sound is is I think there's a definite callback there. The 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 way in which Breath of the Wild uses deploys sound uh and how Tomb Raider did it with that economy. Yeah, and they're kind of not dissimilar in a lot of ways with the the atmosphere that's supposed to be being built both both kind of a uh spooky atmospheric uh in a lot of ways but also this sort of sense of wonder and there's lots of set pieces in tomb raider where you'll kind of come out of a corridor and there'll be something suddenly astounding in front of you i think one of the um the kind of semi-famous ones is in it's pretty late it might be the last egypt level where you come out of um come out of somewhere and you're inside this room massive massive cavernous room and it's just got a huge sphinx statue in the middle of it and half of mm. the level is kind of back and forwards climbing up different sides of the room and climbing on top of the sphinx to to press different switches and then as if that wasn't enough like the the room that you go into after that is this huge um like vertical cavern with these two big statues sat next to each other and the water level changes and you swim up and down through like the bases of the statues and up inside them and it, it's areas yeah. like that you you enter this room and it's like oh my god this this thing and it's the same with the like the dinosaurs in the third level you kind of step out of a cave for i think the first time that you've been outdoors in the whole game and the sky is kind of black on the original releases before i think it was been textured in in later patches and things but you come out into this sort of jungle and this t-rex appears in front of you and it's like iconic things like that that i'm sure people who don't even really know the games that well would still point to scenes like that let's talk about actually playing the thing some more the emailer on our forum 
says, The game is hard, even by 1996 standards. It was too hard for me to see most of the game at 10 years old. Too antiquated for me to play now. I've been back to it a bit. I haven't recompleted the game. Uh, and yeah, I don't want to be too down on it because uh, I have fond memories of it and I acknowledge its importance in kind of, yeah, as I say, it didn't do that many things. It wasn't the first game to do lots of stuff. It's probably the most high profile game to do certain things. Uh, and it, yeah, it, it, it offered an experience that games of the time weren't perhaps offering uh, and I enjoyed it at the time um, but I do find it hard to play now I gotta say uh, I found it I found it started to feel clunky as I say even by Tomb Raider 2 when I bought that the following year I was already starting to think yeah but in between times I've played Super Mario 64 and uh, and other games analog controls were starting to you know repopularize and things like this so uh, I think I think there came a point where that kind of degradation in my mind kind of stopped. It's not like I play it now and I think this is unplayable or anything hyperbolic like that. But even at the time, I remember kind of sort of endlessly bashing into walls and just tiptoeing off tiles and things like this and playing it now. Like uh, even if this game has more nostalgia for me and and it, and it's more important than say even the first set of reboots of the games i'd rather play those i'd rather play tomb raider legend or something than than have to deal with the the kind of the way that lara just exists in this space the that turning circle is truly extraordinary um but that said as we as we said earlier the game absolutely functions around those controls the levels are designed around it and there's still some interesting and kind of satisfying levels to puzzle your way through if you can kind of deal with the fact that there's n absolutely no real help beyond those little door opening cutscenes that we mentioned how do you feel john i think you're probably more positively disposed towards playing tomb raider in the modern yeah times. i'm going to say that i don't really agree with um with that at all well it's, it's not my experience of it um sure i mean it's I think I think it's worth pointing out that I had, as I said earlier, quite a formative experience with the early, um, definitely Tomb Raiders 1, 2, and 3. I played and enjoyed 4 and Chronicles as well, but slowly was starting to drop off. And it's the first three that have a remarkably similar look and style. And they add a few little bits with each game, a few extra bits. But Tomb yeah. Raider 2 has always been the one that really stuck with me hard. I think just a combination of it nails the difficulty and I like the locations and things in it. It's got a, a really good number of levels in varied places. It changes things up from Tomb Raider 1 in some fairly significant ways, like a lot of the enemies in Tomb human Raider enemies. 2. Yeah, yeah, basically that's one a thing. A lot more shooting. That, yeah, Tomb Raider 1 does not have is human enemies. It's like four human bosses yeah. in Tomb Raider 1, yeah. whereas 2 is two different for that. And we should say the, team, the development team changed a lot each each time and they were churning these sequels out year after year so i think if we do go on and cover mm. more more episodes in the tomb raider series we'll find that there was a different kind of guiding philosophy behind each installment yeah they have different vibes to them and i feel like they kind of refine some things as they go along but at the same time there's a little bit of a well people played tomb raider one and really liked it so maybe we ramp up the difficulty a little bit and by the time you get to three 
um, it becomes, mm. in my mind, almost unplayable without um, wow. some sort of outside help. They are so difficult at the levels in Tomb Raider mm. 3, yeah. um, especially yeah. when I played them when I was 15. But I mean, the point I'm trying to make is that Tomb Raider 2 was the game that really stuck with me. So about three years ago, I decided um, I was going to try and replay Tomb Raider 2 because I hadn't played it since the early thousands and thought this will be this will be kind of fun. I've got a huge amount of love for it. It's the one that I really wanted to play. And I played through, I think I've played about two thirds of it since, just slowly going through it. And then when it got announced that um, one was on the cards for this year, I thought, well, I could get away with not playing it. But again, it, I, it was the first one that I played, which in theory means it's the least recent one that I had played at the time. Um, and I, I knew that in my head, like one kind of set the foundations for it, but also was surpassed as as the sequels came through. Like it, it, when I wanted to play a Tomb Raider game in 2018, I didn't particularly want to go to the very original because I knew it would be the one that was the most rough visually and the most kind of basic in terms of the controls and things that come with it. But actually going through it, and I played through the entire game sort of slowly over the course of the year. I started really early because I just had a hankering, and then I kind of got about four levels from the end and didn't come back to it for a while. And I've also then played the um, the the extra kind of DLC levels that were released a couple of years later for the PC version. And I was honestly, like, even though I'd played Tomb Raider 2 fairly recently, I was kind of surprised at how much I actually did still think oh wow this is this is kind of better than my memory and doesn't feel like so much of a a previous step to the sequels that I'm more familiar with um and I at this point mm. in time after having 20 years on top of when I originally played it having that much more experience with playing games and that much more puzzle solving and um just kind of learning the tropes of how games work, I guess, a little bit more. Um, I found it. I it is now the perfect level of difficulty for me. Where in the past I've played through and probably got to somewhere in that third level, maybe the fourth level, and got stuck and didn't know what to do and had to look it up. Whereas this year, some of it goes back to I think like a really weird ingrained bits of memory. Like there are sections of this that I remember really strongly for how long ago it was, but. I managed to get through the entire game and the extra levels, which are a big step up in difficulty, without yeah. using any sort of a walkthrough beyond literally a couple of points where I couldn't, I couldn't see the hole that you're supposed to go through because it's pretty well <laughs> hidden. There's a couple of points that are like that, or where it's it's a little bit too obtuse. There's there's a bit in one of the levels. I think it's one of the extra content levels where you climb up the outside of this massive room. And there's this huge kind of diagonal pyramidal structure in the middle and you get up onto this ledge way above it. And the idea is you're supposed to take a running almost leap of faith into the middle of this pyramid thing where there is a uh, one hole in the middle of it which you can just about reach if you run right Family, and jump at the last second. you should mention that. Mm. Sorry to interrupt no, your no, flow, no. but because uh, there is a there is a way of um, I said earlier, like there's no camera controls, but there is actually a way of looking around, isn't there? You can press uh, as I something. You press zero yeah. on the number pad or something, and it centers the camera. And if you hold it, you can kind of move it a little bit. So I remember with the aforementioned uh, guidebook, uh, as I, I was in control of, of the character with uh, with my girlfriend reading out instructions. 
I got to that point. The, the, I'm pretty sure the exact point that you're talking about. And the guidebook said, look up and you should see a hole. And I still remember I did that, whatever the equivalent or whatever allowed you to look up uh, on the PS1. And the camera clipped inside Lara's shorts, which we, so we found that very funny because uh, we could see a hole in all kinds of senses. But um, yeah, there are some that that's a good example of where the level design without a without a guide. I just uh, I don't know if I'd have ever found my pick my way out of those uh, out of those caverns. So, Carl, you're uh, a fan of certain games that demand that you hold down the jump button a long time before you jump. Right. <laughs> Flashback, uh, Another World, games like that. So. By extension, yeah. you should automatically have always loved the uh, the the nature of the Tomb Raider gameplay, which is fundamentally about holding down the jump button a long time before you jump. <laughs> I've never thought about it like that, but yeah, <laughs> you're right. Good, because I did actually really quite enjoy that. Um, obviously, a large part of the game is spent jumping backwards, sideways, sideways, backwards mm. when fighting. Um, you know, with packs of wolves and stuff. So you, yeah, you spend a lot of time jumping anyway. But um, I think that obviously the the structure of it, walk to the edge of a a lip of something, take your step back, run yeah. forwards, hold your jump in advance, off you go. Yeah. Um, it. I find it. It's so weird that you mentioned those other games because I've never actually drawn that that comparison. <laughs> but yeah, I find it quite cathartic. I think. Um. In in the in the repetition of process, you know that that sure. over and over again of of doing something, um, so it, so it becomes automatic and not responsive in that moment, um, you know that the whole zone one, zone two of the brain kind of thing, um, yeah, that is so funny because I've never actually thought about it like that. Yeah, but what I, about I, playing? I, do, it, I really like the way it what, moves. What about playing it now? Uh, I know you said you went back to like a mobile version, which is mm. not perhaps optimal, um. But I, I bet your I bet your brain still remembers the feel of playing Tomb Raider. But do you are you more with John that you think it it could still work for you now, or are you more with me that like once you've played Tomb Raider twenty thirteen or even Legend from um, not Legend Under Underworld Underground two thousand and eight one, um, just having that extra flexibility and and agile agility of locomotion that lara has in modern games yeah. as characters ex you expect action characters to have now even nathan drake you know in obviously massively the un first uncharted game massively influenced by tomb raider uh even even if you know th th those controls maybe have some issues by modern standards nathan was still a lot more kind of flexible and agile than tomb raider 1996 lara Oh, absolutely. <laughs> after after nearly twenty years of those kind of controls, do you think you know? Again, this I think everyone who's listening to this will have their own sense of whether this is something they would enjoy to return to. We've already mm -hmm. heard from some correspondents who who do. For me, I think it's a bit of a it's a stretch too far. For it, it's you know, I stop enjoying the feel of playing the game, and therefore I don't care about progressing through the levels ultimately. I think there's there's a multitude of different factors here that 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 drive me to probably my my opinion set. But if I'm playing in isolation and I switch off from everything else around me and I only have say the first three Tomb Raider games, yeah, then after a period of time I would adapt to it and I would probably quite enjoy it. And it's not so much the controls and the momentum 
and the timing of the pressing now that's the problem as much as it is the antiquated frame rate and the inconsistencies around that compared to something that's a lot smoother. Mm. Now, I, th- I think it did improve massively by the fourth one. I mean, we can forget the ones that were after that up until we get to Legend. And and, and Legend, I, I've not played that in a while, but I remember really thinking that it had turned a corner in terms of that, that, that movement. And then I think it was mm. Underworld was the one I was after that. Um, and it, it definitely improved. Now, if someone comes to me and says, look, I really want to play a Tomb Raider game, where should I start? Where's a good jumping in point? I'm going to recommend the 2013 one. Mm-hmm. I think it's 2013, right? Yeah. Um, but if I could sell them my memories of how mm-hmm. I remember Tomb oh, Raider yeah. in 1996 and my experience playing through that in the early months of 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 2000 uh, of 1997. Yeah, yeah. That's what I would wrap up and sell. Now, yes. yeah. in an ideal world, and yes, we've had anniversary. And and, mm. and that does make a few improvements somewhat in terms of the feel. But it genuinely blows me away that a remaster remake of the original Tomb Raider hasn't happened mm. um, because I would be all over that. I think that, that's, that, that would be my dream Tomb Raider game, would be a reimagining, a re-envisioning of the original 1996 title. But without that, I'd find it very hard to recommend someone go and play the, the, the classic Tomb Raider. Yeah. Even myself who loved it, it's I would rather watch someone else play it in a playthrough than experience the feel of that for myself, which is a very strange thing to say as someone who often condemns people for never playing games and only ever watching um playthroughs, such as my cousin, for example. <laughs> that's that she does that a lot. Um but that's how I would experience the original Tomb Raider now. The Tomb Raider level data format has been reverse engineered, according to Moby Games. It's called T. Rosetta Stone. Each level contains all the data besides the music. So there is level geometry, all models, all textures and sounds. Some of the files are repeated several times through levels. The levels are composed of blocks. It enables the game to have some Sokoban-like puzzles. Each such block can have several triggers in it. And the game uses skeletal or skeletal animation and waypoints for the AI. Yeah, so the Soko Band style block puzzles became quickly became uh, a cliche. I find again playing it now, moving the blocks around incredibly slow. Uh, the animation still looks pretty good, but the the actual act of doing it and having to kind of re-engage with the block, um, or so maybe this was a control issue, but I, I was having to on on the PC version modded with my Xbox controller. After every push of a square, I had to re-engage with the brick to push it another square. Oh, no, that's, that's correct. That's how the game that's works. That's correct. Okay, good. <laughs> what I said earlier about so, yeah. it, it feeling kind of like yeah. Minecrafty is is, yes. is sort of true. And it's got that awful yeah. thing where, um, you know, you can't pull a block backwards unless no. there is the entire block's worth of space. Like, God forbid, Lara, pull, pull it you know, two thirds of the way and then sort oh, no. of squeeze out from behind it. I mean, yeah. that would, that would just break half of the levels. I mean, I'm sure that uh, there's speed running tricks that I've seen for Tomb Raiders one, two and three. And it's, it's an interesting thing actually, because yeah. they're the way that you speed run these games um, doesn't really tend to rely on. I mean, it is kind of extremely high level play and like high, uh, high quality play. But it's as much as anything else, like exploiting weird ways that the physics systems yeah, and stuff work and sure. like jumping in yeah. ways that you shouldn't be able to and 
skipping getting through a doorway that turns like a two hour long level into five minutes uh, yeah. so it 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 has like a different feel because of how rigid lots of the systems are to how yeah. a lot of other games play yeah which again is something that yeah, coming from the 8 and 16 bit days particularly when there were there were there was a sort of movement to try to uh, kind of push the the medium forward into 3D in in the 8 bit times with a lot of 3D vector graphics games uh, as i say solid and vector um like uh, the freescape games and things like that of course they 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 were very yeah, it made a lot of sense for them to to have these brick puzzles and you expected everything to kind of run at a snail's pace but again it's that it's kind of going back thing is uh it makes it kind of a different experience to at the time but again i remember even at the time sometimes thinking you know come on i wish i could uh, uh, games now we have the luxury of often with with block-based puzzles we have the the luxury of being able to actually kind of just swivel on the spot just kind of slide them all the way around the floor there's no they're not locked into grid spaces but even when we do play games that do use a, a, a system of squares on the floor only where the, the the bricks are limited to those spaces the 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 actual movement of them tends to be so much faster than it was then we should say like this game uh runs uh again it would have depended on your computer at the time of course but runs at uh, 25 or 30 frames a second depending on on how you're playing it so it's not like a it's not like so even some of the same games of the era and and actually thinking about it we went on to play games with lower frame rates in the the, the forthcoming generations thinking about playing things like crisis 2 on a xbox 360 at like 15 frames a second and stuff like that and not really worrying about it too much because we were kind of willing to put up with that for the for the overall experience if we couldn't afford a 1000 pound pc or whatever but yeah just again that sort of each person's going to come to this with their own kind of take on whether they can put up with or enjoy even not put up with but actually embrace that sort of much more ponderous locomotion but i personally find it's my issue as much as anything but it, it tends to make me very antsy very anxious that kind of come on just do the thing that i want you to do i don't want to sit you know it, it's not the, the the graphics are not impressive enough for me to sit there just thinking wow that's a really nice looking cave that you're pushing that <laughs> block around forever in which is something that you might be able to do in a more modern game and you know listeners to cane and rinse will know i'm not somebody who far from it who will automatically trash older games uh listen to our bubble bubble show for a 1986 game that i still have a lot of love for but there are certain things about the 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 way this game controls and plays that i think have aged in a way that i find difficult to still re-engage with john cheatham from our forum says if this were released today it might be viewed as some sort of bizarre experimental dungeon crawler on reflection, it is weird how much of Lara's original adventures were spent measuring up highly precise and punishing jumps in these grid-based environments. Now, I would have less than no patience with the times where you would pull a lever and be expected to locate and reach the random door it opened on the other side of the map, having to trudge back to the lever if you weren't fast enough. And as ungainly as their design concepts are now, though, the first five Tomb Raider games are forever tied to my memories of the original PlayStation and when that big grey disk drive loomed open, there was a good chance one of them would be found inside. 
there's a couple of secret moves which I remember delighting in finding the the handstand, which was yeah a complete uh, piece of just frippery. Um, you I can't even remember how you do it, but something to do with holding buttons down and pressing you up. Hold, walk at the edge of a lip, I think. Yeah, and then push forward and jump. Right, and uh, and yeah, she'll do a handstand, and then there's also there's two ways of falling from a great height <laughs> there's well i suppose three if you include just stepping off there's your regular jump plummet to doom but you can also swan dive which uh which yeah, again it's a lovely piece of animation i think happy gray box five again from our forum says as a fan who grew up playing tomb raider i have no issues and even quite like going back to play the older games the controls are perfectly suited for the block-based world of the game everything is measured in these blocks Press back, Lara will hop back one square. Do a running jump, Lara can go over three squares. Once mastered, you can play classic Tomb Raider with ease, knowing exactly what Lara can and can't do. I would also argue that the controls are surprisingly surprisingly fluid for 1996, as actions can be chained together. Example, you can jump, draw guns in midair, fire, land, roll and jump again. Once I completed this game on the iPhone 4 using the touchscreen, Play that version and you will never grumble about the PS1 or PC controls again. <laughs> I mean, nice to, nice to get a bit of validation for the way that I feel about it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. iPhone 4 aside. <laughs> <laughs> Pecan Pie says, what engaged me was learning the controls. They were so foreign to me, it was like trying to learn a new language. Standing jumps, running jumps, sliding down a ramp to a safety hang and walking, for heaven's sake, walking. By the end, I was more fluent and quickly walking to the end of a ledge, hopping back and making an angled running jump to a pull-up. Also, by the end, I was still running into lava pits, running into spike pits and then run jumping over platforms and falling to my death with that disturbing bone crunching sound effect. There should be some of those walk do not run pool safety signs posted in these tombs. It is a platformer for the patient. Yeah, that's my that's my issue was then and is now. I want to freewheel like uh, like a Mario, but I get it. I get it, you know, and uh, yeah, if you want to have that kind of experience with your Lara Croft character, the, the later games kind of allow you that. Psycho Hype, also from our forum, says, all things considered, this might be among the most challenging games I've ever beaten, and I've beaten a lot of games. Not only are the levels these huge, difficult puzzle boxes in their own right, but you can only unlock them by mastering an insane number of precise platforming sections that require you to carefully position each individual footstep, similar to the original Prince of Persia, but on a much larger 3D scale. As with so many of the best old school games out there, the constant trial and error, whether in puzzle solving, combat or basic navigation, is simply a part of the experience on the road to victory. Sounds like our friend Ben, ben Cartledge. <laughs> <laughs> Deal with it, get good, suck it up, and eventually you will triumph and prevail. Lara's dual pistols are Browning High Power 9mm. I never knew that, according to the IMDb. Other weapons were planned, especially specifically magnums, but uh, dropped. Grenades were also dropped from the final game at some point in development. And the decision to give... The dual pistols infinite ammo was very late as of August 96, just two months before the game came out. They dropped the idea of having ammo to collect everywhere, which 
even though it's unrealistic and always made me think that's unrealistic, it seems like a sensible choice, given how pernickety it is to pick things up in this game. It's another one of these yeah. things that is designed to infuriate somebody like me who doesn't like using resources, where um, I think I will do everything I can to just use the pistols, like run away from enemies, jump up onto bits where they can't get you, and just slowly mm -hmm. chip away at them with the pistols. And then I found the most recent playthrough I did, I got to the end of it, and I had 4,000 Uzi ammo left over at the end. Because <laughs> I don't think you don't even get the Uzis until about four-fifths of the way through the game. Uh, I right. mean, there's, there's a lot of things here where the weapons are, you will get them at a certain point, like as a standard pickup, like an almost At least use them on the final pickup. bosses or later Oh, yeah, bosses, I mean, right? yeah, of course. Um, I mean, it's not for lack of using them. You just, in my experience, you you get sort of resource, um, like overload at certain points. But um, you can also, if you uh, find secrets in... Um, early levels you can be given some of the more powerful weapons quite a lot earlier than you would you would get them if you didn't find any of the uh, secrets but i think still those uzis are pretty late on playing earlier i was struck by just how ridiculous the combat now looks to me the fairly hilarious animal models and behavior and the kind of absurd <laughs> kind of leaping around um, so in they, they had planned to have Lara able to aim at more, more than one enemy in this one, but she can't. Uh, they couldn't get it working. I think it comes in in the second one. Uh, so she's always kind of pointing both guns at, at the same enemy, even if there are multiple enemies on uh, around you. Um, and again, yeah, it's it's not something the whole the whole uh, ballet of the combat is like some kind of weird avant garde dance performance rather than a John Woo-esque thing. I think I can see the intention. And again, at the time, maybe it was closer. It, it felt closer because of expectations. But yeah, I was fighting a couple of bears earlier and I was just thinking this looks ridiculous and doesn't feel particularly satisfying to me. Also, the guns sound lame. Oh, the the sound is, uh, it's just a pop sound, isn't yeah. it? It's, it? There's absolutely no power behind them. But the the, the gun thing's really, really interesting. For me because i remember reading magazines explaining the system so the the view window the yeah, angled view window that. that you had to have to be able to shoot all the animals mm. and oh, well say animals i mean there's some people well pierre like 15 million times because he's got so much health but as you progress it it sorry not as you progress but it, it in terms of reading it because it was almost a thought of the press seeing it as a retrograde step that you would have lock-on weapons because we'd done that in games and we were getting into the era of actually being able to aim your weapons yeah, and shoot right. them, albeit not necessarily very well in a lot of yeah. games. You know, I think I mentioned Lone Soldier at the start um, <laughs> yeah. as one that year, yeah. which you know that was seen as, well, this is ambitious. Um, and then all of a sudden Tomb Raider comes in, it's like, yeah, but you, you don't really aim it does the aiming for yeah. you but then actually as you play it it makes far more sense mm. as to how it works and you can kind of see yes they definitely polished it in, in the in the sequels and being able to shoot multiple things but it it worked really really well and it i suppose um the the 
angle or the, or the way in which you shoot enemies is still something we talk about today. You know, I'm laughing because as we're recording this, you know, Metroid Dreads just come out and we've literally had this conversation yesterday <laughs> yeah, yeah. in Slack. So yeah. <laughs> um, 25 years ago, this was a big thing in the press about, you know, the the the, the angle of, of visibility for the guns to actually shoot. And, you know, sometimes you'll only get one gun going, but if they're right in front of you, it's two. Mm. And then, mm-hmm. you know, she'll switch from left hand to right hand, depending on which way you face. And then every so often you get that real rhythmic shooting. Um, where they both like shoot out of sync, but you're shooting forwards, which I, I quite like. That does something for me. But yeah, it, it was so strange to go in with this mentality that, oh, well, I think I'm not going to like this because this seems like a backward step when everything's changing. And then I actually thought, well, do you know, I really actually quite enjoy the approach that I've yeah, gone Yeah, I guess it's the one way in which the game handholds for you in the, the old times. But actually, yeah. it would have been almost impossible with the controls you had on a digital oh, yeah. PS1 original pad with no analog sticks and whatever else it would have been incredibly difficult to have it work that you could aim into a 3d space unless you'd had some kind of i don't know yeah i think did lone soldier have a first person aiming thing or it was over the shoulder wasn't it so i suppose it was sort of i think it was over the shoulder but you could aim your crosshair yeah so it's kind of so it would uh, yeah i guess they could have gone with with something like that but actually they wanted as i say to me it looks kind of ridiculous now but again i want to acknowledge that it that i think it was an important step towards the more balletic and cinematic kind of combat that you can Mm. do on the fly now even again just even in games like uh games that came not so long after it like the first uncharted just the ability to like grab clips as you run past them when they're on the ground and stuff like that obviously that wasn't so much of a thing here but uh yeah John, are you going to stand up for the enemy models? Again, I accept low polys were <laughs> par for the course, but, you know, do, do you think these are the scariest bears in gaming still? Um, no, because I remember playing Condemned 2 and there's a bear in that. that um, <laughs> it's a scary bear. Potentially uh, see is next one issue of for the details. most scary things I've ever seen in any game. Um, no, I think they're kind of comical looking, specifically the, is it the bears, the wolves, the lions that have their you know, their sort of static face with the teeth pulled um, teeth pulled back and you, you kind of, or the, the yeah. lips like pulled back in this snarl and you, you kill them and they're kind of there on the floor and they just look kind of silly. And the crocodiles that do that yeah. thing where they flip over onto their backs when you kill them. Um, the gorillas look absolutely ridiculous. Um, not, you know, not, yeah. not even mentioning the fact that what the hell are gorillas and lions doing inside? Um, Virtually none of the animals uh, are in the right, location not really um yeah it's best not to it's best just hand wave i quite like the the kind of the idea that the um gorillas and lions are things that are in this this weird sort of sealed off underground coliseum that have just been like living there since well like since they were um originally there as part of some sort of ancient greek uh which actually would be more kind of roman but like ancient greek coliseum games and they've just survived for thousands of years in the cave um but then there's also the um, like the Atlantis enemies that you get later on yes. that all explode and are fairly horrific, like these horrible skin things that skinless scream yeah. at you. They they, they actually, set the tone yeah. for that cliche of Uncharted that at some point, which they eventually did away with, but that that became a joke even in the 2010s or whatever. Like, yeah, you'll you'll be fighting regular guys for most of the game, and then suddenly, yeah supernatural yeah and these like cat mummies that come at you like the clappers the the speed of their movement they do this like jumping attack at you 
and either them or the Atlantis ones later on uh, can also shoot at you. Like they shoot spikes at you. They shoot fireballs mm. at you that explode. They explode mm. when they die. So there's like a um, like an area of effect when they die. And then all of the different body parts go flying off and explode when they hit surfaces. And I think there's another little area of effect that can stumble you and damage you there to throw you off. So uh, like the way that they actually change it up over the course of the game kind of works quite well. And you get these flying things at the end. But like the the basic kind of combat loop, I've always looked at this and thought of it less as like sort of an intricate combat and more of like a puzzle. It's more about yeah. can you like backflip away from the enemy fast enough as they're chasing you down. Without falling to your death. It, yes, without yeah. going off something yeah. that you can't see behind you, without something else happening, bumping into a wall, bumping into another enemy. Will they die before they reach you? Like these lions that dash at you like crazy. Um, how can this woman backflip and shoot at the same time and still land every single gunshot on this thing while you're like upside mm -hmm. down backwards? Um, uh, like, can you, um, you know, can you retreat a little bit, jump up onto a platform? Can you get away with just using your pistols for the whole time so that you're saving 4,000 clips of Uzi ammo for the end of the game that you can take home? with you um uh, so it's never felt anything to me that the the combat although it is it's a really you know sort of publicized feature of this game like every single picture that you see of lara croft in any sort of advertising material she's always decked out with the gun she's always kind of posing with the guns so like oh, yeah. they're as iconic as anything else but to me the combat has never really felt like combat it's mm. more like a kind of a challenge to get around that that kind of fits yeah. into some of the um like the platforming and the movement and stuff as much as anything else because at the end of the day with the auto aim and the infinite ammo of the pistols all you're really doing is just holding down a button and it's like yeah. you know can you hold this down for eight seconds so that the thing that's coming at you is going to die before it gets to you without taking too much damage from it and as we say, it was hugely ramped up in even the second one. And obviously the combat plays a huge, huge part of the recent trilogy. Mm. Uh, what you won't see in this game, though, are uh, brutes with riot shields. That cliche was not yet in the offing. Uh, despite that the doppelganger, according to the IMDb, was meant to be a skinless version of Lara, it actually looked nothing like her. It was extremely thin, had large alien eyes and a humanoid looking chest, making it seem like it was male which is a weird way of putting it, suggesting that uh, because it has a human-looking chest, it doesn't look female, unlike the female character in the game, if you see. Needs 150% bigger boobs. Exactly. Uh, one death I did want to mention, we've mentioned the, you know, being blown up and falling from great heights, but there is a sort of Easter egg death in this game, which is, uh, which is a nice touch. I guess maybe everyone tried this once, standing on Midas's hand. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And this is this is again one of the incredibly famous things that they they redid this really nicely in um, anniversary as well, like as a almost as a nod to yeah, everybody tried mm. this. Let's let's make this look really flashy, and it is cool. Shiny gold. It, that plays into yeah. a, a big part of one of the levels. Um, the Midas hand is kind of this focal point of the level, turning these mm. blocks of lead or something into into gold to get through a doorway. One of the biggest differences between playing this game on Saturn or PlayStation against playing it on PC, other than the obvious things you'd expect, like the resolution being much higher, especially if you play a modded version on PC today, bear in mind that, yeah, playing it with 
lots of anti-aliasing on and at 1920 by 1080 or whatever it's going to be quite a different looking game i think for some ways better and for some ways worse than the original what 240p game on saturn and ps1 uh in some ways those graphics are designed to be looked at at that kind of resolution or maybe 480p but at uh but at these resolutions it kind of casts a, a harsher light on some of the faces and and things like the animal models perhaps but the key difference in terms of actually completing the game was the original console versions had these save crystals now they limited your number of say uses uh, for saving as well uh, or or did that come later actually um either way the one positive thing i would say about these save crystals which are just hanging there in the air in in rooms is that they were the only thing that really acted as a kind of guide through the game in that you knew if you found a new save crystal you'd made progress but the pc version did and does allow you to save anytime anywhere any place constantly as much as you want and obviously that's a norm for pc gaming it's we associate it with with doom and things like that it's often considered anathema when it comes to console gaming we've had many conversations about it with using save states in in games that weren't designed to have them but to be honest i think playing tomb raider with save states is a much more a palatable experience than playing it with the save crystals as was originally released i don't know how you feel about this folks it's hard for me to judge because I don't really remember playing with the save crystals. Um, mm. I, almost all of my experience with this has been playing on PC, so it has just been a right. just essentially just been the way that the game plays. And I've always thought of it as if that is actually how the save crystals work, then my god, that must make it a considerably harder and potentially much more frustrating too, because you're not going to get a save after every single difficult jump, every single platform. Yeah. Um, and I again like the stupid saving um saving all my ammo because i don't want to use it i have this kind of thing where i see the number going up on your save file and i'm like i'd really like to get through the level with like less than six saves because that's some arbitrary nonsense that i can put onto my game so i will unfortunately you know try and do the same bit over and over and over and think oh, i shouldn't save quite yet it's not not been long enough for a save so maybe i make it more difficult for myself in that same respect but um it also you've got a quick save and a quick load um on the pc and because it's yep. a game from 1996 it has no you know no qualms about letting you quick save and yep. uh, you know pressing quick save instead of quick load by mistake and auto, uh, accidentally saving over <laughs> your save yeah. file with with <laughs> yeah, a, a save where you're like two seconds away from hitting the floor after a long fall yeah and i have had sections i think the one i remember specifically was in the boss fight at the end of Tomb Raider 3, where you're on like a, a kind of a raised sort of spoky area, jumping over one of the edges, knowing that I was about to fall and die, pressing quick save instead of quick load by mistake, and like having to reload a file from somewhere on the previous level to get back Keep there. rolling and, saves, folks. Oh, yeah. my God. That, yeah, yeah. I mean, that is a hell of a feeling, and that's happened at least a couple of times across playing these games, so you know negatives as well as positives if you're stupid yeah absolutely but as carl will remember with the save crystals it meant that if you were stuck on a bit and like keep dying on the same section you, you might end up redo it they were they were relatively frequent the save crystals 
but there would be extended sections that you would have to redo to get to the point where you, that you kept dying on and that was occasionally hellish yeah i mean it's it's the equivalent isn't it of the old cutscene before a boss fight <laughs> yeah. that you're still getting games you know that's so annoying because you got to go through yeah. it every single time and some of the jumps might be quite simplistic but obviously the further the game goes on the more high risk those jumps yeah. become so yeah that, I mean, the save crystals were really problematic but as as you've already kind of said, Leon, that the, there is a huge positive to them as well, where you can get lost in a, a world. But you, yeah. if you see one, you're like, "Well, I'm going in the right direction." Um, it's uh, it's something that I know I talked about on the um, Castlevania Symphony of the Night podcast for the exact same reason. It gives you that grounding that, oh, okay, I'm definitely making progress. That's okay, and you can settle and look around a little bit more. So that's the positive to the save yeah. crystals. The negative is that, yeah, sometimes it could be. And of course, Five, 10, 15 the minutes. reason for this being that uh, to have the complex save data of any location, um, I guess, would have potentially required more of a memory card, which were something you had to buy separately and expensively. So with the save crystals, the the memory card only had to know which save crystal you were at and yeah. nothing else, basically. Well, actually, no, because it still would have had your, your, inv- your, your inventory. Your inventory, yeah. 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 Ian, 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 Ian from the forum says, <laughs> I completed this on PS1 for the first time in 2020, having previously only played various demos on Saturn PS1 and PC over the years. The push for more and more action story and set pieces as, as the sequels released seems poorly judged in retrospect. This original game is so easy to pass and be involved with. Slowly unraveling all the hidden corners of each tomb is compelling even today. And I love how stripped back the combat is. Lock on, shoot, jump, and let Lara's instinctual action hero skills take care of the rest. While the controls initially seem to suffer in direct comparison to Mario 64, they actually suit the precise nature of the platforming very well. The discreet and consistent animation-driven movements on all those digital inputs pair very nicely with the almost grid-based geometry of the levels. The biggest niggle for me is the tiny activation bounds on collectibles, There's a lot of sidestepping to get just into the right place to collect things. I have to admit to save scumming to save time during my playthrough, but I never felt bad about it as I'm fairly certain the PC version had the same feature. Indeed it did. I'll certainly be returning to this great game periodically as I feel it's up there with Doom, Mario 64 and Shadow of the Colossus as a really important touchstone in the development of 3D gaming. I would actually love a remake of this game that was basically identical, maybe with one or two interaction animations sped up, but with the graphics of the beautifully realised Lara Croft Go plastered on top of the original game's collision geometry. I'd like to think it would go down as well as the recent Tony Hawk remake. Yeah, the Lara Croft Go, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. So that was very cartoony in my, my memory. It was like, mm. um, sort of... Uh, Definitely style. Yeah, like we also had the animation. The isometric dungeon crawlers uh, of some years ago. Oh, uh, they're the Lara Croft and the Temple yeah, of Osiris Guardian of, and Guardian of something. Osiris. Yeah, yeah. fun times, but yeah. totally different. Yeah, uh, Croft Manor was modelled after the front of the Derby-based studio where building where Core Design worked on the game. One thing I did want to mention, partly related to level design, partly to visuals, and again, an effect that possibly wouldn't come across to somebody visiting the game for the first time now with modern graphics but uh, but I do remember St Francis Folly being legitimately making me feel 
like I, I'm not a vertigo sufferer, but it it felt so high mm-hmm. uh, that you could look down and see multiple levels below. Uh, I remember actually, yeah, that that vertiginous feeling being quite powerful at the time. That idea of having like a vertical essentially climbing puzzle because that that level you do have to go up and down at various points for switches to open doors and then the door will either be you know a floor to above you below you but it it definitely has that kind of sweaty palms feeling of like uh sides uh crawling along this ledge until you can reach the point where you go up and if, if you're me with like the pc version your finger like little finger is pressing that left control key in so hard like I thought if I let go of this, I'm going to lose like five minutes worth of progress. Um, and it, it has, I find a feeling that I always used to get with Dark Souls, like walking along a ledge or something. It's like just one tiny little thing that went wrong could set me back a long way here. And I think that's, there's a few bits in Tomb Raider where that's very obvious. There's a few of these like very uh, vertiginous climbing sections and puzzles and things around it, like massive rooms that are clearly just built around some very complicated climb up around the side of this and they it, it's it's one of the things that i think plays into the atmosphere of it and what makes it feel a little bit like a horror game even though that's not really horrory it's more just anxiety inducing there i realized i incorrectly used the commonly misused term is acrophobia isn't it the fear of heights vertigo is a, an effect of the fear of heights which was popularized yeah. by the by the movie of the same name and i also wanted to mention yeah swimming famously the drowning animation was horrific again crystal dynamics absolutely went to town with the death animations for lara in the in the recent trilogy oh, yes. uh, you can see some true horror uh, in in your tomb raider there but uh but again swimming just uh we, i think we talked about it a bit same year uh, was duke nukem 3d that sort of feeling of a whole other kind of existence of diving into a level into the water and i still find it a very powerful and um you know persuasive element of a game now to to dive into the underwater of a level and kind of swim around what's beneath and i think tomb raider became more swimming heavy as the series went on definitely but uh, but just those early pools of water were so inviting and uh, and actually although the controls you know maybe weren't as elegant as you might like at times lara actually felt more i suppose as we are in some ways even though we're you know we're amphibious creatures i suppose a bit more um a bit more a bit smoother to move in the water than actually on the on the land at times yeah Mm. there's there's like um a forgiveness to the underwater bits as well where as somebody mentioned Mm. in one of the comments like you have to be standing in a very precise spot to pick up an item on the floor but if you're underwater, yeah. even if you're like yeah. half a body length away from it, you get that thing I described oh. earlier, like that submarine just kind of sideways movement and like spin around yeah. to, to yeah, position it in the right in place. Kind of thing. Like mm. um, a bit like we'd see later on Infamous, the Infamous games where you, you, one of the first games to try to have you jumping around in midair and landing on tiny, tiny platforms. How do they do it? Well, they basically cheat it. So it, it, it sucks <laughs> you into the into the area in this case it was to to stop you running out of air so quickly i suppose because that would have been incredibly frustrating to just keep running out of air because you couldn't get the contact for the activation exactly mm. right or whatever i think the the first game is 
it, there is a reasonable amount of swimming. It's not like atrocious. It it definitely does get a lot worse with future games. Um, but there's there's certain points in the first one. I think it's in either the first level or the second level. Um, with all of the, it starts off with as the like the village huts. I think it's the second level. Um, and there's a big pool in one of them that you can swim down a very long tunnel and find a switch and it opens something up. And I think if I remember correctly, it's not even turns out to not even be um, uh, like necessary to do it. It just opens up a door that leads you into a room with a couple of items mm. or something. But that's it feels like a good tutorial in that early level where we are going to make you do some of these long swimming sections and you don't really know where you're going. And it's the sort of thing that would absolutely terrify me in reality. Like I would just not do it because what's the mm. chance that you, I mean, eventually you are going to swim down a passageway that is too long and you can't get out of oh. and you will die. And it's fine Terrific. in Tomb Raider because you just reload it. But um, yes, it, it's the first game has its moments. There's a bit in, I think it's the end of the Greek levels. It's the one where you eventually come up in a big pool and then you fight the centaurs before you go into whichever tomb that is there. And that's got like some long passageways that you swim down, possibly with like air pockets to kind of alleviate it a little bit. And if you're feeling more spicy than you might otherwise be, you can like take a slight diversion to get a pack of shotgun shells off to the side that's going to cost you like maybe another seventh of your your air meter to do it but it's it's got nothing on um my other kind of echo the dolphin moment is tomb raider 2 skipping levels through that and there's a level which must be about the seventh or eighth level where if you haven't been paying any attention to what's going on just skipping through them you're just you start the level in the middle of what is essentially like a black ocean not being able to see anything sharks immediately coming towards you and That's even even if you know exactly, Darren and Josh would loathe this. Yeah, well, this is, this is, and Rich, I think it's it's got similar kind of twenty years later, still feel a little bit claustrophobic and um, yeah, thalassophobic because of it. But starting That's off the... drowning, chased by sharks, even if you know exactly where you're going, you still start to lose health before you get to get out of the water. So that's very much like a a patience test and trial and error test of figuring out where to go. Unfortunately, there's nothing quite as brutal as that in, in Tomb Raider 1. Oh, and no shark warning in Tomb Raider No sharks yeah. either. No jaws sting. Billy from the forum says, Tomb Raider was the highlight of my Christmas as an 11-year-old when I got it for my Saturn. Over the next year or so, I made slow progress, but it felt earned. This is still quite a difficult, obtuse game to play, but its laborious mechanics made me feel more like an explorer, struggling with ancient terrain and... The sound design was incredibly immersive. Each level felt huge, enticing, and yet also very lonely. I completely bought into the atmosphere of being at the far edges of the world, deep underground and far from safety. I still feel like I've been to places like the Tomb of Qualapec. They were so rewarding to discover and after some particularly brutal platforming. Uh, however, a corrupted save in St. Francis Folly did undid my hard work and I bought the Prima strategy guide for the rest. I confess I didn't finish the game. I never have and probably never will. My Lara is lost forever in the caverns of Atlantis. But then the destination never really mattered. It was the thrill of exploration. Not sure your Lara would feel quite the same way about that. Happy Grey Box says in 1996, I was 10 years old. 
I was pulled away from Sonic 3 and made to go to another kid's house, someone I hardly knew, so our sets of parents could socialise. He had a new PlayStation, and we played Tomb Raider. It was magnificent. A moment I'll always remember. I thought the few Mega Drive games I had were the best video gaming could ever be. But here was a 3D world and a realistic looking, for the time, character to explore it. Absolutely mind-blowing. 25 years later, I've played every Tomb Raider at least twice. There have been ups and downs, but it's probably my favourite series. And Tomb Raider 1 is one of my favourite games ever. John mentioned Unfinished Business. This was uh, an expansion pack, expansion pack for the Windows version. Uh, also came with promotional materials for the sequel. In 98, the levels were made available as a downloadable con a downloadable content in 1998. Imagine that. Uh, a budget version was released in 20, uh, 20th of March 98, containing both the game and the additional levels under the title of Tomb Raider Gold, which is the version you get if you buy it on Steam, I think, by default, although it doesn't have the gold moniker anymore. Production on those new levels was led by Phil Campbell, who was a newcomer to the team, transferred to core design after another project was cancelled. Uh, the two new areas were dubbed Unfinished Business, set within the ruins of the Atlantean Pyramid and Shadow of the Cat, which saw Lara exploring a temple in Egypt dedicated to the goddess Bastet. Unfinished Business was intended as an alternate, more difficult finale to the game, featuring more mutant enemies and focus on complex platforming. The concept for Shadow of the Cat was born from a cat statue used in the Kamun level, with the levels being themed after a cat's nine lives. Due to licensing issues, several later re-releases excluded the gold content. So says Wikipedia. You're, uh, do you actually, bearing in mind that they were by a different designer, do you think those levels stand up in their own right? Are they, are they fun? I think that they, um, they show off the fact that they were made after certainly sh uh, Tomb Raider 2 must have been well in production at sure. this point. As often DLC does, even mm. to this day, you can see they've, you know, they've got stuff that they didn't have early in development. Yeah, so I feel like some of the lessons that they put into Tomb Raider 2 and then possibly 3 afterwards with kind of enhanced difficulty made their way into here. And I, I've shared a few pictures of um, my experience playing through these on the Slack channel. And one of them is there's a room that has literally 25 boulders in the ceiling. And it's kind of like... You oh, make yeah. your way across a chessboard of, um, you know, uh, squares to get to the, the end of the room and various tiles will set off various ones of these boulders. And it is just it just typifies that kind of trial and error. Make a save before you do this. Thank God this wasn't, um, you know, wasn't available on one of the versions of the game that relied on save crystals. And this it's it's got so many spots like that with um triggers that set off multiple multiple enemies um kind of trial and error switches where you'll find a room that's got a bunch of um uh like glass doors and a load of switches and some of the doors have items behind them one of them has like the key to progress and all of the other ones have enemies so it's a, that thing mm. where you can you kind of make your save beforehand and test out which of these switches is going to give you what you want and which of them is just going to set a load of these yeah. screaming cat things after you um, and coupled with some also pretty difficult platforming because they're essentially uh, there's two Egypt levels and then two Atlantis levels. So they have the the kind of the Atlantis geometry and uh, enemies and then the um, 
similar kind of uh, the mummy versions of the Atlantis enemies in the Egypt bits. So they 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 definitely feel like a, a step up from the main game. Like story wise, I don't think it adds anything. I'm not even sure if there's there's any um like preamble to it or anything, any cutscenes or anything at all. No. It's kind of just like yeah. here's here's some extra challenge levels if if you want some extra challenges. Yeah. And they they feel like something that somebody who got very good at using the level editor might have created for the game. Psycho Hype from our forum says, I played this game relatively late back in 2005. I'd recently graduated from college and was using my expensive private school English degree to work as a shoe salesman at the local footlocker. But that was just a part-time job, leaving me with plenty of spare hours to dig into my roommate's PS1 collection and this game in particular, which I played to its conclusion, all without a guide, save for one small hang-up in the first Atlantis level. I bet it was that hole in the roof again. It could well I certainly be. don't remember all the specifics of every map, but there are plenty of scattered moments and set pieces that remain firm in my memory. They include the moment early on where the game's unusual combat, aka acrobatic jumping and dodging as you blast away with your unlimited ammo pistols, started to actually click. The unexpected appearance of the T-Rex that I managed to kill on the first try. The first place where I had to swim through a bunch of underwater maze corridors with a limited supply of air, as well as that smooth animation of Lara struggling to pull a lever while underwater. The animation where Lara handstands on a ledge like a gymnast. The constant jump scares when Lara would round a corner to be suddenly attacked by a bear or velociraptor or a pair of angry gorillas. The cool puzzle rooms in Greece and that clever throwaway death animation when you tried to climb King Midas's hand. Some of the most frustrating jumps and platforming sections in any game I've ever played. But such a feeling of satisfaction when I finally cleared a difficult level. A death-defying leap into a pool of water late in the game. The super cheesy final boss fight against a flying Natla. Now, we uh, are going long, but we can't not talk about an infamous part of Tomb Raider's history, as Wikipedia has it. A fan-made software patch dubbed Nude Raider. The patch, when added to an existing PC copy of a Tomb Raider game, caused Lara to appear naked. Contrary to rumour, there is no nude code in any console version of the game. During the original game's production, a suggestive cheat code was suggested to Toby Gard and Douglas, but they strongly vetoed it. In 1999, Core Design considered taking legal action against websites that hosted nude pictures of Lara Croft, stating that we have a large number of young fans and we don't want them stumbling across the pictures when they do a general search for Tomb Raider. In April 2004, it was falsely alleged that an insider from IDOS reported to a Tomb Raider electronic mailing list that IDOS had begun suing players using the Nude Raider patches. IDOS sent cease and desist letters to the owners of NudeRaider.com URL that hosted the patch to enforce its copyright of Tomb Raider. Sites depicting nude images of Lara Croft had been sent cease and desist notices and shut down and IDOS Interactive was awarded the rights to the Nude Raider domain name. <laughs> to use it as they felt. Uh, as a response to the controversy, Core Design included a secret code in the sequel, allegedly a similar nude code. It in fact blew Lara up. But of course, what those of us of a certain age remember was CMVG's April Fool, uh, where they printed an elaborate set of instructions that involve you sidestepping Lara to the exact rhythm of Wannabe by the Spice Girls. If you did it for long enough, disco lights would start shining throughout the level. 
And I can't remember the exact, but yes, then something would happen and Lara's clothes would fall off. And they even went so far as to mock up screenshots, I think, of the event with uh, with stars over the the rudest parts. <laughs> the the um, triangles, the, the little point yeah, at the end of the triangle. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what a ridiculous state of affairs. Um, of course, now I imagine you can find uh, the most depraved filth involving Lara Croft on the internet. I haven't looked. Uh, but I do remember we're talking about uh, the uh, live real actors who played Lara Croft officially. I think, was it Nell McAndrew who went on to do a Playboy spread after she'd played Lara Croft officially? And then she did a Playboy spread in America as a basically not as an official Lara Croft, but it was the, you know, there was, it was heavily Im implied that that was what was happening. So, tawdry and sordid. <laughs> Mechner from our forum says, my strange resounding memory that I always associate with Tomb Raider 1 is a weekend my parents went away. I was left alone in the house and I decided it was high time I beat the game. I powered up my Dell Windows 98 machine and turned on my TV next to the computer as well to act as some background noise and something to watch in between all my deaths to break up my gaming session. So it's Saturday. I start Tomb Raider and on the TV is this film, Darby O'Gill and the Little People, a strange old Disney movie set in Ireland about leprechauns and an old man named Darby, also starring a young and singing, in inverted commas, Sean Connery. I battle my way through many of the levels in Tomb Raider and memorable puzzles while every so often catching up on the movie. The Hand of Midas comically turns Lara into gold as Darby attempts to steal gold from the Leprechaun King. I finally get to one of the Egypt levels, which is pretty far from my first sitting. The movie is nearing its end where Darby fights a banshee with a rake. I decided to watch the end of the movie and return to Lara the following day. The following day, I power up the game again and load my save in Egypt. Specifically, it's the level where you have to raise and lower the sand level to progress. I decided to turn on my TV again to accompany me, on, accompany me on my fight to the finish. Upon switching over to the only channel that isn't sport or news, I'm immediately struck with deja vu. Darby O'Gill and the little people is on again. Literally, just starting. How strange. I decide to leave it on as a curious omen and continue my playthrough to the finish of the game. More exceptional levels and memorable puzzles and bosses. That doppelganger I'll never forget. With Natla finally defeated and the pyramid escaped, just as I finish, I look over at the TV and there, to my absolute surprise, Darby is again fighting the Banshee with a rake. Is this a dream? I don't know. But all I know is Darby and Tomb Raider 1 will always be inseparable in my mind. Here's our final bit of long-form correspondence from the forum. Sean S. Thomas says, Back in 1996, Tomb Raider was a game-changer. Its release coincided with my parents getting divorced and me getting a part-time job while studying for my A-levels. So I was starting to be a bit more independent and have my own disposable income. I'd not owned a 16-bit machine and had totally missed all the buzz around the next-gen launch, given all the teenage distractions. And I recall walking home late one night from work, catching sight of Tomb Raider and Wipeout 2097 playing in a department store window. I still have vivid memories of that moment now. Characters realistically moving into the screen rather than across it. And it looked incredible. I bought the official PlayStation magazine the next day. And after a few days of anguish over whether or not to do it, spent most of my savings on a PlayStation with both of those games. Wipeout 2097 was incredibly important for me as I became obsessed with its aesthetic and music 
I went on to become a graphic designer because of its influence and had some of the original development team kindly help me write my dissertation on it. Tomb Raider was almost as important though. I'd grown up longing for exciting adventures, pining to one day travel overseas on holiday and leave my hometown. Playing this felt like a way to do that. I remember the world going Lara Croft crazy and her face appearing everywhere from LucasAid ads to the face magazine. For the first time in my life, gaming seemed, if not cool, then at least acceptable. But what, what I loved about Tomb Raider wasn't really anything to do with the marketing. In fact, all the discourse around Lara seemed to be about shooting and sexualization, whereas the game is a very different experience to that. It's solitary and quiet, just you and a forgotten ancient world that you need to venture through to find a way out of. You aren't casting a male gaze over Lara. You are Lara. And what landmarks? The plot makes no sense, and I have no idea why all these ancient dynasties are in rooms next to one another like an early underground version of the British Museum, but I didn't care. I longed to see what ruined kingdom was next and hear that little shimmery run of notes that told me I'd found another secret. I loathed the save point system and had to restart the game at one point because of using them all up on my descent down a vertical pillar, but I never had any real issue with the controls. I only came to enjoy the wondrous movement of Mario a few years later, so Lara moving more like a chess piece around a gridded and angled environment I had to figure out felt part of the charm, almost like an extension of turn-based combat. That would change, and by later entries in the series, I'd begun to find it very tired. Tomb Raider 2 up the action, 3 the difficulty, but neither recaptured the magic for me. But that first title felt like one of the biggest generational leaps in gaming I've ever seen moving gaming into a world of 3D immersive mainstream entertainment. Its ambition, scale and unorthodox design decisions took several years to be bettered and pulled me back into a pastime I thought I'd left behind. Great stuff, thank you. In just three words though, follow us on Twitter at Kanerintz. Uh, Retro Box Room says, needs a redux. Hoggins. Run into walls. John Cheatham says, extremely specific jumping. Psycho Hype says platforming patience rewarded. Biggie Monster, uncomfortable death noises. Miri, we enter a theme for the next few three word reviews, says effective sports bra. Pixel Hunted says uh, predictable breasts puns. Weedle, amazing triangular shapes. Red Fox M18 says perky triangle boobs. Uh, Windy Miller Time says want Toblerone now. <laughs> Karma Police, pointy polygon pectorals. And finally on this subject, Danny Blazin says big jiggly polygons. Although they are not they jiggly. Sort of, they're jiggly. <laughs> well, they're jiggly. The, the polygons in the game are quite jiggly in that, on the PlayStation anyway, and the Saturn in the way that polygons were. But there's no breast physics. No, this is not dead or alive. Uh, I'm going to pronounce that as Lukip, Lu- Loikip. I think I think so. Says uh, T Rex. Oh no! And Dave Lawrence, super spelunking exploration. Thank you, one and all. Brief summaries. Then I think you'll have all got a handle on where we are with this. So for me, I have fond memories of playing the game at the time. I kind of bounced off the series after that, and. Personally, to be honest, I don't find it an especially enjoyable game to go back to to play now. Certainly, I would have no desire to go through 
the entire game and and uh, and replay those later levels. But I can totally understand why other people would get a lot out of it in a in an era when a lot of games do kind of hold your hand and tell you where to go and stuff like that. Uh, this game most assuredly is a throwback in that regard. Uh, definitely like the idea of a kind of yeah collection for the current systems or even the last gen systems of all the games up to and including well maybe not the ps2 one so all the games up to and including the yeah the dreamcast era ones i suppose uh nobody wants to replay angel of darkness i guess uh well, but yeah a nice version on of youtube of there's a lot of people who would like to replay angel of darkness it's yeah a surprisingly large is, right? fan community around that game yeah there always is you're right uh but anyway yeah, that would be nice, but uh, but no, for me the 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 control is too rigid and stiff and clunky and slow, and I find it actually quite frustrating and a little bit boring to play. But important game, great legacy, astonishing music. Uh, but yes, I recommend playing something else probably today. Carl, <laughs> I think Tomb Raider's like. A, a cultural time capsule, isn't it? It's the uh, epitome of the mid '90s attitude era PlayStation. You know, uh, although it was a multi-format release, it quickly became adopted into Sony's stable. It was in their advertising campaigns. You know, it was on all the it was on merchandise everywhere. It was it was just something that I've probably never experienced since. Uh, as we turned a, a real leap in, in in terms of technical generations, um, it really rode that wave, and it came at the perfect time. And you know, the association with everything else that happened in that era is so strong. From how I experienced playing it, you know, going to school as a thirteen-year-old and, and talking about it, and um, the next day with my friends, seeing how far they got up to, you know. The, the smell of Lynx Africa, um, you know, aftershave and, and body spray, you know, the, 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 everything that is you can you can <laughs> equate into that that mid nineties nugget of of secondary school. That was that was Tomb Raider. It was it was absolutely incredible at the time. Unfortunately, anyone coming to that now who hasn't maybe experienced it before, I can't sell that package that was my living experience with it and for me it was absolutely magical and something that you know uh, it makes me smile and i relate to it so much and it it's defined my enjoyment of games afterwards and i think that that's the long stem legacy of something like tomb raider is there's a whole generation of video games players who are playing games that are so heavily influenced by what Tomb Raider did in terms of a 3D space and took the 2D influences and the you know the, the movie influences and turned it into this this gaming culture around it and, and and that is that's absolutely tremendous that that's where we've got to and 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 I feel like Tomb Raider is in a real strange space now you know it it almost died off it had that doom like resurgence with the with the 2013 one and Again, it seemed to peter out a little bit, and is it a franchise that maybe is is done and isn't as as mainstream now? I don't know, but for me, I'd love to see them come back and, and 
do the whole Resident Evil remake, you know, the 2002 remake that we saw of of that game and that level of a whole reimagined new technology environments and movement and worlds that you're actually in caves and tombs and, and searching um, the animals, the, 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 the magical elements. That for me is something that, you know, I'm, I'm sold into that, 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 that it, it completely resonates with me in so many strong ways. Um, that's where I'd like to see it go to. Uh, and, you know, my recommendation for anyone who wants to experience Tomb Raider now, it's, it's going to be an incredibly rare recommendation because I almost never do this is I'd say just watch a long play on YouTube. Um, preferably a non-commentary one because, you know, I'm a purist um and watch it play through there or a 56 Um, minute speed run yeah Yeah, i mean you could always do that one but there are there are some good long form runs where it's it's quite well polished at around six seven hours seeing everything that you've really got to see um but yeah it's very enjoyable game great legacy you know as leon's already said that soundtrack the the music is probably the 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 thing that really is stands up now and it is absolutely incredible but yeah it's i love all my memories and my history with it i just i miss what tomb raider was john take us away from this heresy um actually (laughs) well i mean i don't know that i could disagree with what carl said to be honest like most of the points that he was making there uh, uh line up pretty well i think that it's um it's clearly a remarkably uh, influential and important series of well game particularly but series of games and you know it, it's been very difficult for me throughout the course of this podcast to separate at least the first three Tomb Raider games in my memory because everything is mm. so so heavily ingrained and I think I've probably spent far too much time talking about the sequels that we weren't supposed to be covering but I mean they are I think there is very much a point in time and kind of a nostalgia and an importance in both gaming history and in my own personal gaming history and kind of development of my enjoyment of games and it's it's impossible for me to overlook that but it's also very very difficult to to sell that to somebody else who doesn't have the same feeling i mean can you imagine trying to tell you know your 17 year old cousin now go and play tomb raider one from uh nearly 10 years before you were even born and see what you get out of it and i i just can't can't imagine in that way that a, a recommendation is is going to do anybody who isn't already on board and um agreeing with that opinion is is really going to look at it and go oh, maybe you maybe you got a point maybe i will try this and maybe that's not entirely accurate i mean i think a comparison that i'd like to make with the the kind of the tone and the atmosphere of Tomb Raider would be something like Super Metroid, and it's remarkable how the tale on that game has lasted, and to the point where I mean you watch something like an AGDQ and they're doing speedruns of Metroid, and you look at some of the people on the couch playing that game who are now like world class players, and you're like, you must have been about minus fifteen when Super Metroid was released. Like why, why, where has that come in? Like how 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 did you get into this game? So maybe there's a possibility that there's that angle could could come through with Tomb Raider, but I'm not. I'm, mm. I'm less <laughs> less convinced. And I I think it's more more a kind of a personal preference and personal adoration and a very distinct series of nostalgia uh, across the early games that I've got. And 
I mean, it, it might be difficult for me to sell you on that, but you can't take it away from me. And I <laughs> plan to continue enjoying Tomb Raider games. And I think that the the 25th anniversary, I know that Tomb Raider is a huge thing and it's it's kind of hard to look at it now. And even the main game series or the main franchise, I think is made up of 12 games with then countless spin-offs and other things and Lara Croft appearing in everything else you can imagine. Like, I'm kind of surprised that she hasn't rocked up in, um, you know, one of like the Mortal Kombat games or anything yet. I suppose she's probably in mm. Fortnite. Um, <laughs> so I guess, I guess that kind of plays into it. But the, the sheer kind of importance of it and the amount of, of love and attention that's been given to the earlier games over the course of this year has been something that's that's really kind of helped to reinvigorate um my kind of playing through the game and, and enjoying it in the way that I have. And I I really hope that the like the um the conclusion of the year of Tomb Raider Love is going to be some incredible announcement about where the series is going next or uh, at least some sort of uh re release uh, reintroduction for some of the earlier games. And I'd really like to see that. And I do think that the 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 newer trilogy the whatever it's called the reboot trilogy rebirth trilogy survivor trilogy is the one that is is kind of current now and is the most in line with modern games obviously but i think that there are aspects of the the early games that for me do more than it or like do more to set off like specific um like neurological touch points in my head or like specific kind of dopamine senses that I like. I really like the, the exploration and the, the satisfaction of solving a puzzle and figuring out where you're supposed to go and, and all of that thing that the newer games don't really have so much. I, I, I think it's probably unlikely, but I would enjoy seeing the series returning to its roots a little bit more if that was possible. All right. Just remains for me, Leon, to thank John and Carl, editor Jay, as well as our correspondents, and of course, you for listening. Next time, in issue 492, as we mentioned, gnarly crime and grungy horror in our Halloween adjacent Condemned Criminal Origins podcast. Thank you.